As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Focus on education and programs like yours, you've had hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of information from your guests. Come on your program and talk to your audience for free. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, for all my fix and flippers out there, are your financing costs eating away at your bottom line? And are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by lowering your loan payments to the bank or maybe your private lender? Well, our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, you know Patch of Land, they've been on the show, representatives of their company have been on the show many times, they've been a sponsor of this show many, many times, they're back for more because they love you and they love working with the best ever listeners and they've got an interesting point of view on interest rates and that is that it's... The interest rates that we are quoted shouldn't necessarily be taken at face value because perhaps a higher interest rate could actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And they have a white paper on how that is possible and how that can be applied to your fix and flip business to help your bottom line get more profitable and to help you choose the best uh, lender for your financing needs. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and they've got a white paper for you and it will walk you through the way to evaluate interest rates in terms in general on your loan so that you truly are getting the best interest rate because there are some tricky things some lenders try to do to um, glaze over the fact that their lower interest rate, quote unquote, is actually higher based on some technical things that they put into it. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and get that white paper so that you can save money on your fix and flip projects. Patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluff with us today. Hunter Thompson, how you doing, Hunter? Joe, it's an absolute honor to be on here. Thanks again. Well, my pleasure and nice to hear that. That's for sure. And a little bit about Hunter. He is the founder of Cashflow Connections, which is a real estate syndication company. And well, they have helped allocate investor capital to over 100 properties, which have a combined asset value of over $350 million. 
He's also the host of Cashflow Connections podcast, and he is based in Los Angeles, California. Their website, where you can learn more about Hunter and his team and their company and what they've got going on is cashflowconnections.com. There's a link to that in the show notes page. So that being said, Hunter, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. My grandfather was a successful businessman in the 70s and 80s, and I learned a lot from him growing up, really from the legacy of just owning a business, investing in hard assets, and allowing compounding interest to create wealth. I was very much an entrepreneur at a young age. I remember my parents lived next to a popular concert venue, and when I was about five or so, these events were taking place, football games or concerts. Parking in the area would be just a complete nightmare and was really challenging. So I remember selling parking spaces out of the backyard for 10 or $20 and splitting the profits with my mom. So that'll kind of give you an idea of kind of how I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And 2008 happened, obviously a paradigm shift for a lot of people. I knew that there was going to be an opportunity in financial assets just because price depletion had been taking place over all of sectors of the economy, but particular financial assets. So my original interest was in stocks, but that later changed just because of the lack of predictable cash flow and the volatility in the market. And I remember it wasn't really until 2010 or so, and that's when the European debt crisis was taking place. And I remember watching CNBC and the anchor was talking about the Greece bond yields. They were saying that if the Greece bond yields remained below 7%, that the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if the Greece bond yields went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And I just remember watching the Dow Jones take 600-point interday swings and thinking, how is it the case that something completely complicated, unmitigatable, that I just could never conduct due diligence on or control is playing a significant role in my financial well-being or my financial future? And that's what really led me into real estate in California in particular, the market had been completely decimated. So when I started jumping in with two feet and going to three to four networking events a week, I was building relationships with probably five to 10 people at each networking event. But when the market recovered, I came to find out that because these were the people that had been able to weather the storm, they ended up being some of the most successful and influential real estate entrepreneurs in the state of California. And this is kind of unknowingly at the time. But that's really what led me to start Cashflow Connections and leverage those relationships for my business and for my clients. And those relationships still play a huge role in my business today. What is your business model? We syndicate opportunities for accredited investors. We identify asset classes that are poised to perform in either economic standpoint or demographic standpoint or something similar to that and identify sponsors who are best in class in those particular asset classes. And then we syndicate opportunities for our investors to invest alongside of us. I invest in each opportunity and basically provide a passive investment on a vetted passive opportunity in a vast amount of asset classes, particularly recession resistant asset classes, most notably self-storage and mobile home parks. I see on your website, you've got properties across the country. And I'm looking at recently closed and one's in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I was thinking Arkansas. And you've got things across the country. How do you qualify these deals in all these different markets across the country? That's a good question. It's a couple different things. First of all, from a geographic location standpoint and a market identification standpoint, 
we're consistently seeing opportunities in the Southeast in self-storage. And the reason for this is the two driving factors of really what makes a good market, the economics and demographics. So the economics is such that in the Southeast, the cost of living is low enough to substantiate. If you're making $50,000 a year, you have a relatively comfortable life and have the capacity to do the two things you need for self-storage, which is things to store and money to pay for the service. And you kind of compound that with the demographic shifts that are taking place, particularly in markets like Florida, where a lot of baby boomers are retiring and moving to that market. And baby boomers present an interesting data point with self-storage because social security checks are probably around the $1,300 a month range. The average two-bedroom apartment is about $1,200 a month. So a lot of these baby boomers that are retiring with $10,000 a day or so, they're being forced to downsize. And when they're downsizing, they're very likely to keep their stuff. So when you're put in that position, you're very much more likely to be a tenant of self-storage. So it presents an investment opportunity. In terms of going and doing due diligence across the country, going on site is probably the last stage of due diligence. We're very heavily reliant on upfront due diligence in terms of not only markets and demographics and economic third-party verification in terms of verifying those data points, When you go on site, you learn a lot, not only in terms of the market, you can get a feel for things that can't really come across on a spreadsheet, but also in terms of the previous property manager, which kind of paints the picture for where the value add is going to be in that particular opportunity. Let's dig in there. You said you do third-party verification prior to going on site. What are those data points that you're specifically looking for? I'd say with cell storage, there's a couple things you want to look at. First of all, it's really good to have 50,000 people within a five mile radius. That is going to provide you with a substantial economy with a diverse employment group. Now, this is typical, right? Some things change, but that's just a good data point to look at. We want to see 20 to 25 daily traveled vehicles per day. And something else to keep in mind is 20 to 25,000. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that's important. 20 is not going to cut it. But what's really equally as important as that extra times 1,000 there is that the vehicles have visibility to the facility. You can get caught up in that data point and inappropriately assess the value and the visibility by just looking at how many vehicles pass by. In self-storage in particular, a lot of properties may be tucked away behind something like a Walmart, which makes it completely invisible. And so that needs to be taken into consideration. A medium household income is also very important. And that's something you want to look at in the three and five mile ranges. I like to see 50,000. And one of the things you hear a lot with self-storage is that the asset class is still relatively new and it experienced a tremendous increase in its overall scale over the last 20 years or so. So from about 1993 to about 2010 or so, the number of facilities more than doubled from about 20,000 to 53,000. So right now, there are more self-storage facilities in the U.S. than there are Subways, Starbucks, and McDonald's combined, which is just unbelievable. Now, that paints an important data point in terms of the desirability of the asset class from an investor's perspective, but more importantly, they're easy to build. So you have to identify markets that are undersupplied. And one of the ways to do this is to look at the national average find the number of square foot per person in particular markets on a national basis and find where that market sits in that space. 
So we underwrite deals typically to seven square foot per person and multiply it by the population size and you get a good idea of the supply demand equilibrium in that market. Seven square feet of self-storage per person? Correct. Okay. Because I'm slow. Will you run that formula bias one more time? Basically the number of people times seven in the market. And that'll give you a good idea of the demand for square footage in the market. So for example, when you create that calculation, you'll find a, a number of square feet And if the number of square feet that's already available in the market is above that number, the market is oversupplied. Mm. If it's below that number, it's undersupplied. And just to add to that, one of the things you want to look at is the typical self-storage facility is somewhere between 50 to 100,000 square feet. Those are the ones we look at at least. So if you have a market that is 200,000 square feet undersupplied, which is possible within a five mile radius, That means that even if one was built next door to your facility that you're considering buying, you're still going to be in an undersupplied situation. Mm -hmm. So that'll kind of give you an idea of some of the metrics that we look at. And why seven? That's just basically what the national average is. The national average is about 7.8. So to be conservative, we use seven. 7.8 square feet per person of storage facilities in that market. Exactly. So for example, and you want to look within, let's say a five mile radius. Okay. So if there's 50,000 people, exactly. So you want to look at it on a radius basis and you can do this in particular markets. And it's important to keep in mind that some markets that supply demand, that doesn't paint the entire picture. So there are some markets, lakes, for example, where people are going to be really mm. likely to use self-storage because they're using boats and jet skis and stuff like that, or there are more affluent markets, et cetera. There may not be a lot of population, but there's going to be a lot of demand for self-storage. So it's something to keep in mind, but it'll give you a good idea on initial due diligence in terms of that poll. Is it possible to search publicly how many self-storage units there are within a five mile radius? To get accurate data, you have to use a paid program. It's possible to estimate it based on looking on Google and estimating the square footage of each property. But to get accurate data, you have to use something like CoStar or something in that range, $2,500, $5,000 a month. Is that what you use? Yeah. And this is in conjunction with our sponsors as well. Okay. That's how you identify the opportunity with self-storage. Now you mentioned the other thing I'd like to learn more about is you said going on site is the last part in the process. You do a lot of preliminary upfront work. What are some of the things when you attend that walkthrough for the first time that you're looking for? There's a couple of things to take note of. First of all, The real opportunity, and this is just my opinion, people have different opinions about this, but in my opinion, the real opportunity in self-storage is in value-add. And the way that value-add is created is twofold. You have a very sticky tenant base. These facilities are usually highly occupied, but there can be a significant discrepancy between the physical occupancy and the economic occupancy. And this is a term that is used in other asset classes, but I've never found an asset class where it's more important in self-storage. So for example, you could have a property that's 90% occupied, going along cash flowing, that's 67% physically occupied. And the discrepancy there, the delta, is due to things like low rents, mismanagement or management being overpaid, concessions being too high, prepaid rental rates, etc. And you can also look at things like U-Haul. 
U-Haul is a strategy that we implement in conjunction with our sponsors where we have a relationship with U-Haul. We allow U-Haul to park their trucks on the facility. They park 15 to 40 trucks depending on the side of the facility. We rent those trucks out to the tenant base and get compensated from U-Haul for facilitating the transaction. The reason this is key is that on a risk-adjusted basis, this is really favorable because there's no capital expenditure there. We're not maintaining the trucks. We're not buying the trucks. They're just simply parking the trucks there. And I have personally invested in facilities where this one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line, just from those commissions. So mm-hmm. if you're looking at $3,500 a month times 12 divided by a seven cap or so, you're talking about $600,000 worth of equity. And on a risk-adjusted basis, again, very favorable. There's several other strategies similar to that, but that's the one that's very simply implemented and very favorable. Mm. What's number two? I'd say in terms of those strategies, yeah, mandatory tenant insurance is another good one. So you can advertise rates by saying $120 a month for climate-controlled units. And then when the tenants get on site, you say, by the way, we have to have mandatory tenant insurance for all of your items so that in the event that something goes wrong, all of your items are insured, you get paid out. Very similarly, you facilitate that transaction and get a commission for facilitating it. And this, again, can add something close to $1,500 a month directly to the bottom line, which is $200,000, $300,000 in equity. And I think the key there is you're just really padding your equity position so that in the event of a capital market correction, something like we saw in 2008, your equity position is better solidified and your loan to value is more stabilized and secure. That's the value add component and that can help some best ever listeners make a whole lot of money in self-storage. I appreciate you sharing that. I want to go back to the question of what you look for when you're on site at the property. So what are some of the things you'd look for? First of all, we're looking for the lack of the implementation of those strategies that I just mentioned. One of the things that we want to find is signs that it's run by a mom and pop operator. So you can see little things like, for example, we were on site a few years ago and the manager was renting scissors. He had one pair of scissors that was renting out because people use boxes when they're moving, et cetera. So he was just renting out these scissors to the tenants for free. Now that isn't really going to affect the bottom line, right? We're talking about $7 with a margin of maybe 50% or so. It's not really going to make a huge deal on a spreadsheet, but the key there is the mindset that this person was going about his business with. It's thinking of it as a business as opposed to just thinking of it as a way to make some cash flow. And that's the key. The business operates much more like a fully functioning business than a cash flowing passive investment vehicle, though it can be profitable both ways. Mm -hmm. So when you arrive on site, you're looking for signs that it's run by a mom and pop operator, but wouldn't you already know that it is or isn't run by mom and pop operators since you've done all this due diligence before you get there? Yeah, absolutely. That would be in late stages, but those things can paint a very good picture, but it's hard to look on a spreadsheet. So the reason I mention that is that when you're looking on a spreadsheet, people may pass on opportunities that are absolute 
gold mines. Mm. So I mentioned earlier that the facility may be 90% occupied. Most investors that are listening to this podcast for sure would probably say, I've got my money's better spent in other places where there can be significant value add. But because of that and the combination of the tenant base, which is very sticky, it's definitely something I should touch on because they're monthly lease renewals and the gross dollars is relatively low. So if you raise rents by, let's say 6%, that may be something like 6 or $9 a month to the tenant base. So the question really becomes, is this tenant going to take the time off work, move down the street where they're probably going to do the same thing just for the $6 a month or so? Overwhelmingly, the answer is no. So those value-add strategies can be implemented very quickly because of the sticky tenant base and the monthly lease renewals and the low gross dollars amount. Mm. Now let's taking a step back, looking at your business. When you put together a deal, how do you make money? We're compensated based on performance above a pref. So our sponsors get compensated and we create an LLC and our accredited investors invest into that LLC and we get compensated based on a performance above a pref, a share in the proceeds above a preferred return. Okay. And what are the typical fees that are charged? We kind of looked at a couple different structures out there and I'm very much aligned with incentive alignment is like a driving factor in my perspective on investing as well as a business owner. So the two plus 20 is the typical private equity firm. They're incentivized to raise money and that's how they make money is that 2% assets under management fee is going to be paid regardless of performance. Now, the reason they do this is because it's scalable and predictable, et cetera, but we have foregone that and will continue to do so as long as possible. So in replace of an 80-20 plus two or something like that, we usually implement something close to a 7% preferred return with the 70-30 split thereafter. And this is results in something that's very competitive with the other, let's say, platforms or private equity groups out there. But the key is that 90 to 100% of the compensation is based on performance. So when you compound that with the fact that I personally invest in each opportunity, we're not doing a lot of deals. We're doing deals that I'm personally confident will perform for my own portfolio. And that's really the way that I like to set everything up. If something goes sideways and someone says, hey, this is going sideways, trust me, I know, I, you know I'm going to be on top of it more than anyone else. And I like that. So that'll give you a good idea of the fee structure there. Okay, great. And do you also have an, an acquisition fee? To this day, we have not been paid cash for any acquisition fee. We can be compensated and typically are compensated in shares again. So it's performance above a preferred return. So that's something that can be deal dependent, obviously, but mm -hmm. I want to have as much exposure to these opportunities as possible. So that's the way that I prefer it. Got it. Okay. So there's something like that, but instead of dollars, it's additional ownership shares in the deal. Exactly. And I think that's important. And it's a really important question to ask, how is the compensation being presented? Because early I mentioned there's a co-invest. Well, if I say there's a $100,000 co-invest and I have a $200,000 acquisition fee, there's no co-invest to say the mm -hmm. least. And I'm incentivized to just do deals. So I don't like that. I like being very, very picky and I'd be happy to do four deals a year for the rest of my life. So that's what I look for. Based on your experience, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I'd say focus on education and programs like yours. You've had hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars of information from your guests. Come on your program and talk to your audience for free. And 
it's crazy the amount of content which is available that was not available when I was going to those networking events I mentioned to is unbelievable. When you build relationships with people that focus on education, they're always in it for the long term. That's why they're focusing on helping educate their clients. And that is totally the game in real estate. Building relationships for the long term, building lifelong relationships based on aligned incentives is really the key. And I offer a free podcast as well, have some very sophisticated individuals. I very well could turn that podcast into a course and charge $1,000 for it, but I just like helping people. So that's kind of been my motto. How do you qualify deals across multiple asset classes? Because I see on your website that you're in multifamily. We've spent most of our time or all of our time on self-storage, but I see also mobile home parks, performing real estate notes, office space. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a good question. And I'd say that a lot of people that are successful in business say that you have to be laser focused. And if you try to be too diversified in your focus, you're not going to accomplish anything. You certainly won't be an expert in anything. And people may look at the portfolio and look at my own personal investment portfolio and say, how do you have an edge? Well, the reality is I'm hyper focused in the passive syndication space. And my value add is identifying asset classes and identifying sponsors that can be complete experts in their particular field. So my expertise is by really conducting a significant amount of due diligence on sponsors and going through those underwriting assumptions on a line-by-line basis, trying to figure out who I'm dealing with, going on site, like we mentioned earlier, and that's really the value add there. So when you're able to leverage other people's expertise, time, access to credit, liability, et cetera, you can build a diverse portfolio without kind of doing what a lot of people may do when they try to spread themselves too thin. Ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got the document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space, but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com. Best ever book you've read? Four-hour work week. Best ever deal you've done? You know, you mentioned it earlier. That Fayetteville, North Carolina deal is definitely up there. Bought for six. It's going to be sold for 9.6 very, very soon. Over what period of time and how much did you put into it? It's been about three years. As I said, that another one came up. There was another one, mobile home park deal, bought for nine, sold for 20, that I think was probably going to outshine that one. And that was taking place about four years. On that one example, the Fayetteville ones, bought at six, selling at 9.6, right? Did I hear you correctly? Yep. Something very close to that. Something close to that-ish. Three years. How much did you all put into it? We put in a total of about 200K in that one. We obviously partner with other capital partners to take down the entire equity stack. I mean, for improvements, not your equity into it, but in order to get it from six to nine, I imagine there was some CapEx money that was put into it. How much of that was put into it? About 800K. Okay. So you're all in around seven and you're selling it at about two and a half more than that. What would you attribute that to primarily? 
Well, it's not exactly about the return there. It's about the risk-adjusted basis. So all those strategies that I was mentioning earlier, none of them were being implemented. So the way that that was able to happen was just implementing those strategies, not building a new facility, not expanding units, et cetera, but just implementing those strategies. Cool. And you went through those value-add strategies earlier. I appreciate that. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Well, I made a bet on an operator that didn't have a lot of experience in an asset class I don't think is very scalable, which is single family houses. Fortunately, the operator was me, so it didn't cost me very much money, but I learned my lesson. That was one of the first things I think a lot of people do, invest in houses that are thirty or $50,000, thinking that they're going to perform as they do on paper, and I made that mistake early on in my career. How much you lose? About thirty k. What's the best ever way you like to give back? I am very much a fan and, and a proponent of capitalism and free markets. So this is an important question because it's challenging to answer without tampering with markets. But I think that disaster relief is one of those instances where you can make a significant difference without tampering with the market. So Team Rubicon is someone that specializes in those particular situations. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? Feel free to email me at any time, hunterthompson at cashflowconnections.com. I also have the website, cashflowconnections.com. And we have a podcast. If you podcast listeners out there, love to get your perspective on the show. It's the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. I think we have a lot of podcast listeners and I am very grateful, Hunter, that you spent some time with us. You got very specific, which we always love to hear about how to evaluate the demand for a self-storage facility, talking about the number of people times it by seven, and that gives you the demand and it's the number of people within a five-mile radius. Obviously, there are variables in play like with any generalization like that, but that is a good rule of thumb for us to get started and how to evaluate demand. And if it's over that amount, then it might be oversaturated or oversupplied. If it's under, then it might be undersupplied, that's the seven mark. And then also the ways that your company makes money as well as ways to add value for self-storage facilities and you gave a couple of tips there. So thanks so much for being on the show. Really grateful. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Awesome, Joe. I really appreciate it. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space, but still want to light your business on fire. Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing for investors by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com.